This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If I haven't met you, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's great to have you with us. If you're new, thanks for being here and uh, joining us for worship. And you picked, uh, if it's your first time, uh, you picked a good Sunday to come because we are starting a new series today. And uh, we're going through a book in the New Testament called Colossians. And so we're going to teach just kind of verse by verse through this. And this will carry us through the middle of the summer. And then we have kind of a short uh, series at the end of the summer. So that's kind of what's coming up. So good time to be here. So uh, we're calling the series Preeminent, the Supremacy of Christ in the book of Colossians. So we're going to be looking at how Christ is, the book talks about how Christ is overall and at the same time, this is the amazing thing for the believer. He is in us at the same time. The God who is overall is in us as well. We're in Christ. So we're calling it preeminent, uh, the supremacy of Christ in the book of Colossians. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. So if you have a Bible, open up to Colossians 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, under the seat in front of you. You can grab that and turn to page 572. 572, and that'll take you to Colossians 1. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read these first eight verses that we're covering, and then uh, I'll kind of fill in as we go some of the background. I know this is like ancient literature for us. Uh, this is something written 2,000 years ago uh, to, uh, from a guy named Paul to a church, and so uh, I'll try to bridge some of the gap between then and now, uh, but I think you're going to find this, uh, this passage has a lot of relevance for us today. So Colossians 1, 1 through 8, this is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, and we pray that you would uh, speak to us through it. We pray that you would uh, bridge the centuries uh, and that you would help us understand what what your heart is for this fledgling church and that you would connect it uh, to the places of our own lives. Lord, give us faith today, give us love today, and give us hope today as we find in this passage. I pray that for every person here. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Paul is an apostle. He calls himself that in the first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ. What that means is that he is authorized um, by Jesus to spread the message of Christ in the first century. And so he is uh, relating to not to Jews, but to Gentiles. And there's kind of two people in the world in the Bible. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. And if you're not a Jew, then you're the latter. Uh, He's speaking to Gentiles. And he's writing to this church. It's in a city called Colossae. You say, well, I've never heard of Colossae. 
Well, that's no surprise because it was not a major deal. It was a city that was about 125 miles off the coast of what we would call today Western Turkey. So if you get the nation of Turkey, Western coast going about 125 miles and you'll find Colossae. It was, it was part of three cities that were kind of pretty close together. Uh, I saw the mileage. It would literally be like from here to Little Elm, downtown Little Elm to downtown McKinney. Those kind of be the distance of these three towns. One was called Laodicea. We read about them elsewhere in the Bible. One was called Hierapolis and then one was called Colossae. Uh, Laodicea was a commercial city, so it was well known for that. Hierapolis was kind of a, uh, a town with springs and, and kind of a restful vacation. Maybe in the modern day, we call it kind of a vacation spot, that sort of thing. And Colossae was known for absolutely nothing. <laughs> it was an insignificant city. As a matter of fact, scholars say of every letter in the New Testament, every city that gets a letter and it's saved and it's in the Bible, Colossae is probably the least important, least significant city of all of them that receive letters, which is, that's helpful to know as we go through, because God's not just into Rome, major cities like Rome or Ephesus. There's a letter to Ephesus, major city. Uh, But God is caring about people who are from sort of the towns that aren't that famous as well. So what is Paul saying when he says, we pray for you in this first paragraph? I want to read you a story uh, that I think really describes, and I'm going to refer to this through the whole sermon, because this This metaphor that I'm about to share with you, I think really describes the prayer that we read just this morning, these five verses of prayer. In his commentary on Colossians, this is what N.T. Wright says. I think think you'll be able to track well with this. He says, when Susan bought the house, there wasn't much growing in the garden. A few tatty little shrubs. He's, He's a Brit. Tatty, I don't even know what that means. A few tatty little shrubs, a moldy rose bush or two, a tree that had been bent sideways by a storm and left to grow crooked. It was a depressing sight. A few days after she moved in, a friend came to visit and brought some seeds for the garden. They were special, he said, not what you'd expect. Once you've planted them and watered them, plants would grow vigorously and would quickly cover a large area with beautiful flowers. But that wasn't all. Hidden under the leaves would be a delicious fruit. When that appeared and ripened, then you'd know the plants had come to stay. Within a week or two, the garden was transformed, and Susan decided to get rid of all the old plants and let the new ones flourish. They quickly filled the small space with color and perfume. She telephoned her friend, what on earth is this new plant? It wasn't in any of the gardening books she had ever seen. Ah, he said, it's new. It's transforming gardens everywhere. You're part of a whole new world. Right then writes, now I don't think there really is a plant like that. I tell the story because it's a scene like that that Paul has in mind as he starts this short letter to the Christians in Colossae. The main thing Paul wants to say can be summed up quite simply in terms of the gardening illustration, which he himself uses in verse 6. In verse 6, he says the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. He is delighted to hear that the wonderful new plant of the gospel has been planted in Colossae. And that it's bearing fruit and growing, as indeed it's doing in the rest of the world. 
Since Paul himself is responsible for bringing the plant to this part of the world, he wants them to know that he's thanking God that the plant is taking root with them, and he wants them uh, he wants to tell them how to nurture it and help it bear more fruit. I think it's a helpful illustration because what he's saying is the seed of the gospel has come into this town of Colossae. And it's, it's, the, it's, it's bearing fruit as it's taken root in people's lives. So what is the gospel? If we're saying the gospel in his illustrations, like this plant that was planted in the, in the lives of the people, what is the gospel? Gospel means this. The word technically, literally means this. Good news. Every time you hear gospel, that's what it means. It means good news. And we learn in this passage that we just read that it's good news that produces something. It's good news that generates something beautiful that wasn't there before. That's what's happening in Colossae. Something is now there bearing fruit that is beautiful. It's bearing fruit, he says. It's increasing, and it wasn't there before. It's good news that is having an effect. It's good news that has come, and it has brought people to life. And now that they've been brought to life, they're joined together in a community, a family, a church. They're joined together, and now they're blossoming. They're blooming together. That's what's happening. And and kind of the whole point to summarize his prayer is this, that through through the good news, the gospel or the good news, through the good news, God creates communities of faith, love, and hope that are meant to change the world. Through the good news, God creates a community of faith, love, and hope. That's what we read about here. And they're meant to change the world. So first of all, I want to talk about each of these three. If you look at, I'm going to talk about faith first. If you look at verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you. So we're going to look at a community of faith, love, and hope. Those three are often together in the Bible, faith, love, and hope, or faith, hope, and love. And uh, they're often together. So he's going to talk about each. The first is a community of faith. Now I'm using the word community. It's not in there. It doesn't say community, but he's not writing to one person. He's writing to a whole group of people in this church. So we could call them a family, we could call them a church. I'm just going to use the word community. He's writing to a community of faith. And he's saying that verse four, they have, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, Paul hasn't been to this church. A guy named Epaphras took the gospel to this church, we read in this passage. But he's saying that since you heard the good news, there's now faith. And we've been hearing that you have faith. Also love, also hope. But we've been hearing that you have faith. And I've been praying and thanking God for that. Now, this is a key point. He says, we thank God, verse 3, since we heard of your faith in Christ. He doesn't commend them for their faith. He doesn't honor them for their faith. He doesn't congratulate them for their faith. He thanks God for their faith, which the strong implication is their faith is a gift from God. It's God that has been at work. God has worked to give them faith. And so now they, they have this, this faith and something amazing is happening in them. Um, so how did they receive this faith? Well, look at verse five, the second part of the verse, since you, uh, Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So you heard the word of truth, the good news, which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It's bearing fruit and increasing. It also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So how did they come to faith? The good news came to them. 
They heard it. They understood it. They embraced it as the good news. They embraced it as the grace of God. So what is this good news? We kind of have to look elsewhere in the Bible to see what is this good news? The good news is Jesus. The good news is that Jesus is God and Jesus is man and he comes in love. And Jesus comes in love to restore us, to renew us, to reconcile us to God. He comes to bring us to relationship in God, to give us a new life. Listen, here's the reality is that the world is broken. All you have to do is scan the internet, look at, a, look at, a, uh, look at the news, what's going on in the world today. Uh, look at your social media feed. Just walk around, travel to someplace else in the world, and you'll see that the world is broken. The world is not the way it should be. And I think we all know that, that we're not living in paradise on this planet. There's suffering. There are problems. There are challenges. People harm one another. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And if we're honest, I think we'd say, hey, when I look at my own life, there's something broken in me too. There's something wrong with me. It's easy to look out there and say, it's all wrong out there. But if we're really honest, I think we'll say there's something wrong in here too. For instance, I don't love everyone. I don't love everyone. That, a perfect world would be where everybody loved each other, right? But we might look at our own heart and say, you know what? I find it hard to love some people. I find it hard to forgive. I don't forgive everyone, maybe. I don't put everyone's needs above my own. I don't prefer everyone else first and, and take care of myself last. I don't put everyone's needs. I don't sacrifice for everyone. I mean, here's, a, here's the, the shorthand way to say it. I don't love everyone perfectly. And what's, what's worse about that, what's worse than that, is I don't love God perfectly. And yet the Bible calls us to love everyone perfectly, like Jesus did, and love God perfectly. And we don't do that. Failure to love God perfectly, failure to love others, is what the Bible calls sin. Now, you may think of sin, may think of a list of different sins, but every sin that the Bible mentions could come under one of two headings. Not loving God perfectly and not loving other people perfectly. Maybe loving myself above them. So that all sins kind of stem from that. So what God does is Jesus comes and he does love everyone. He does love the Father. He does live a life of perfect love. And yet he is sacrificed for our failures. He dies on a cross and what he's doing on the cross is dying for our sins, our failure to love God perfectly and love others perfectly, which is the great commandment. Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus is then raised from the dead to defeat sin and to forgive everyone who will believe in him and his death and resurrection. He brings new life. That is the good news, what Jesus has done for us to bring new life. And the Colossians have believed that. They've received that. And now something's blooming. Something's growing that's beautiful in this city, in their lives. The gospel, okay? The gospel is good news. It's the good news of what Jesus has done. This is so important to understand because the gospel is not a list of commands that you must fulfill to make yourself right with God. That's the most common notion. 
Oh, yeah, what's the gospel? It's that I become a good person so that God will accept me. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not a message of morality. The gospel is not a message of a religious lifestyle. The gospel absolutely is not a political platform. The gospel is news. That's what the word means, and it would really help us to think in these terms. It would really help to believe the word gospel is what it means. It means good news. That's what it literally means. It's a Greek word that means good news that we translate gospel in our Bibles. It's good news. It's news that you hear and believe. And when you hear and believe that, after that, your life starts getting transformed, sometimes slowly, but your life starts getting transformed. You don't transform and fix yourself and then receive that news. No, you receive that news. It's the seed that is planted that then a life blossoms from that. The Christian religion is not based on something that we're called to do for Jesus. It is based on what Jesus has done for us. And that distinguishes it. Uh, It makes it a very unique message that the message of Christianity is some news that you hear of what Christ has done that you then believe it. And when you do, your life changes. This news is powerful and it spreads. That's what's happening in Colossians. It spreads and he says it's spreading throughout the world. He says in verse 6, it is the Uh, Since you heard and understood it, this news, you understood the news. What is the news? He says it's the grace, verse 6, the grace of God in truth. Grace means God's favor to those who deserve judgment. So he's saying you heard the news. You heard the news and found out what Jesus did. First of all, you probably found out that you're under the judgment of God apart from Christ. We all are. But then you found out that Jesus took your place. Jesus took that judgment. And you heard the news, Colossians, that you can be free. That you can be free. I was recently, well, I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm, t- well, I'm going to talk about this later. Let me get back to it. Okay, let me get back to where I was going to go. Okay, uh, you can be free. You can be changed. They hear you can have new life in Christ. And when you believe, you, the, the Spirit allows us to encounter a power that is unlike any other power. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the good news. It's good news. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. This news, when received and believed, as they do, they have faith in Christ, it's a power that changes us. And if you haven't experienced power from God, if you've never experienced anything of a changed heart, I'm not saying that you live in like some cloud nine happy place all day, every day. Absolutely not. We have troubles. We have difficulties. We mourn. We grieve. We're discouraged. We're lonely. We have human, once you believe in Christ, doesn't mean you have no more human experience that's negative and you only have positive emotion and experiences. That's not what it means. But I will say this, if you have never known that kind of power in your life, if you've never known a new heart, something of a clear conscience, something of a freshness in your soul because of Christ, if you've never known new affections where you'd say, you know what, I'm not really sure what I thought about God, but now 
Man, I love him. There's, there's a love in my heart for Christ and what he's done for me. If you've never experienced anything of a new mind where you say, wow, I'm thinking differently about that. My mindset has changed. My view of people and Christ has changed. If you've never had that, then, I, then it's worth asking, have I ever had the Colossians experience that said they heard and they understood the news? Have I ever really heard the news? Have I ever really believed the news? Because the news will produce some kind of change in me. Or maybe you have heard and understood the news. And you go, man, I, I get that, but I have drifted so far from that. That was like another time in my life. That seems like a long time. Yeah, I know what you're talking about, but it's not really who I am today. That may be you. And so what do you do? You say, I need to be sort of renewed I need a renewal. So what do I do? You know what? That question, I think, is the wrong question. What do I do? What you do is the same thing you did when you first became a Christian. You go back to the news, and you look at Jesus and what he did, and you receive what he did. If the impulse is, what do I need to do to get all renewed, like some new exercise and diet plan for the soul, you know, what do I need to do to get spiritually fit and in shape? You don't start there. It doesn't start with me. It starts with what Jesus did for me. And even if you're walking with the Lord great today, it's about what Jesus did for you. And we go back to that. We go back to his love, his care, his compassion, his forgiveness, his sacrifice, his holiness, and his grace, which draw us to himself. And go back. I got to focus back on what he did for me. And then that stirs the heart. And from that overflow of my encounter with him, then I do. It's appropriate to put some disciplines in our lives and that sort of stuff. But you don't start with that. You start with the news. Now, recently, I've had a couple conversations with people who have told me they're having a spiritual awakening. Very powerful conversations with a couple different people. And one of them said this to me, I am now looking at the Bible, and I believe it's true. I'm reading it. And I said, what is that experience for you like? What are you experiencing? And this person said to me, I feel free. That was a word. Free. When the good news comes, there's a freedom that comes into our life. Someone else told me that I feel like I've been, this is someone, this is a recent conversation. Someone told me, um, I feel like I've been asleep spiritually. I've known about Jesus, okay? I, I, I even believed. I think this person said they believed. But I've been asleep, and now I'm waking up, and I'm seeing things like I haven't seen them before. This spiritual encounter. These weren't, these weren't people who... You know, these weren't people who were hallucinating or something. These weren't people who were, uh, you know, just trying something new for their lives. These were people who the Holy Spirit, the news got real to them that they had heard of and maybe believed before. And now they're awakening. So Paul says, I thank God that you have faith in Christ because you heard and received the news. And that is producing something. You're growing and you're a community and there's this, this faith in Christ that he speaks about. It's bearing fruit. It's increasing. Number two, they were a community of love. He says in verse four, I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. So faith and love go together. Faith and love go together. This is super important. If I don't love other people, and he says the saints here, 
So we may think that that's like super holy people from history. Maybe they did a miracle or something like that. But the saints that he's talking about are just believers. He says in verse 2, he's writing to the saints and faithful believers. Uh, I'm sorry, the saints and faithful brothers. The word brothers there means brothers and sisters. It's, uh, It's generic for men and women. So he's writing to the men and women of the church, and he's saying that um, he's writing to the saints. Saints means holy ones, and they're not holy by their actions. Uh, they are holy because they're in Christ. So they're relate, they believe in Christ, and so now they're set apart, and he can say, you're the holy ones in Christ. So all, he said, now you love all the saints. So if your faith doesn't cause you at some level to love others, if my faith doesn't cause me to love others, then it's probably not real faith. Because faith and love go together. If I love, if I have faith in Christ, then one of the things he's going to do is give me a love for others. And here it says, a love for all the saints. That means other believers. Now we're supposed to call, we're supposed to love people that don't know Christ for sure. That's all over the Bible. That's the way Jesus lived. He loved people that didn't love him. Uh, but we're also to have a love for people who do love him, the saints. And for some of us, that's harder. Seriously, someone's going, okay, I can love it's for this person suffering over here, this homeless person, this really needy person over here, or this atheist over here, or someone who just doesn't happen to be a believer in Christ. I find it easier to love them maybe than someone else. And that's what he says here. You love all the believers. And so it's faith and love go together. Faith leads us to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And the love is connected to Christ. If it's not a love that's motivated by Christ's love for me, then it's not the kind of love that's going to change the world. The kind of love that's going to change the world is the kind of love that Christ loves me and I'm accepted by God totally because of what Christ did for me. And because of that acceptance and love, now he's changing me to love others. And when I share that kind of love based on him pointing people to him, that kind of love blossoms into a garden of, uh, of faith, love, and hope that is bearing fruit, as he talks about here. The Colossians believe the good news, and the sign that they've believed the good news is that now they love. One person wrote it this way. They said, the sure sign of grace at work was the fact of a loving community created out of nothing. Here's Colossae. Nobody knows about Jesus. A lot of people walking around with all kinds of religious views. A guy named Epaphras finds out about Jesus, comes to the town, starts telling people about Jesus. They start hearing the news. They receive the news. They're forgiven. They have new life. They join together in a church. And now they love one another. They may have never hung out before. They may have been, man, these are the kind of people I would never hang out with. Don't know them. Could be different. In the New Testament, there's Jews and Gentiles together. Could have different points of view, but we're united in Jesus. And now I love you. And they say, I love you. And they're committed to one another. That's what it says. So what is this love about? Well, the power of this love is in verse 8. It says, he's made known to us, prophet made known to us your love in the spirit. So it's a love that comes from the spirit. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit gives us this love. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. So it doesn't say, now I believe in Jesus, so I've got to force myself to be nice to people. But it means that now that I believe in Jesus, I'm asking him to change my heart. And the spirit is giving me eyes so that I see people in a way I wouldn't have seen them before. And I have a heart for people I would not have had a heart before for. That's a sure sign that God's at work in our lives. And the scope of it is all the saints. So the power is the spirit, the scope is all the saints. Your love, faith in Jesus Christ, verse 4, and the love you have for all the saints. Listen, no wonder the gospel is bearing fruit in Colossae. 
because people are going, hey, did you hear about the new religion? I don't know, some kind of new philosophy, some kind of new religion, some guy that died, but now they say he's alive, and I don't know what. All I know is I saw those people and the way they relate to one another, the way they love each other. I mean, I don't know what they believe, but something's happened. No wonder the gospel in Colossae is what? Verse 6, bearing fruit and increasing. No wonder. Why is it increasing? Because of the love you have for all the saints. You can see it right in the text that this love is causing others to want to know about Christ. Loving the saints. Loving other Christians. Loving the people on the row you're sitting on. Loving the people in the circle on Wednesday night at the community group. Loving other Christians. Not some of them. Verse 4, the love that you have for all the saints. Not just the white saints. Not just the black saints. All the saints. Not just the young saints. Not just the old saints. All the saints. Not just the humble saints. They're easy to love. Not just the humble saints, not just the easy-to-love saints, not just the conservative saints that think like I do or the progressive thinks saints that think like I do. It's not the progressive saints. It's not the conservative saints. It's all the saints. Paul says, I'm getting this report that the gospel was planted in your hearts and that it's now blossoming forth, and I'm hearing that you're loving all kinds of people, all the saints. Said another way, when the gospel grips our hearts and the spirit produces love, we will even love the self-righteous saints, the weak saints, the stumbling saints. It's not can't you get it together. It's all the saints. That's the stumbling saints. Why do you think you're so great? Self-righteous saints, all them too, may need to be corrected, but all of them, all the saints, the battling and addiction saints, the socially challenged saints, the ungrateful saints, the immature saints, the easily provoked saints, the I have little self-awareness saints, the talk too much saints who talk to too many people saints, the very hard to talk to saints, all the saints, you get the point, all the saints is what he's talking about. And as I'm going through that list, if some, name, some names and faces are flashing in your head just, just be aware that your face flashed in someone else's mind in that list. And it probably wasn't under the category easy to love saint, okay? The fact that you were sitting there totally judging everybody else may mean that your face showed up in the self-righteous saints in somebody else's, uh, uh, somebody else's uh, list of names. Man, this is what he says, the the love for all the saints. When the gospel takes roots in a community, there will be the fruit of love. Not perfect love, but it'll show up in an increasing way. And that's the kind of church we want to be. I know know we got a ways to go, but that's the kind of church we want to be. Sometimes when I go through a list like this, uh, it can be convicting. What does that mean? It means I feel kind of like, oh, yeah, I think the Lord's correcting me here a little bit. 
So sometimes when I go through a list like that, I want to be corrected by it. I want whoever needs to be corrected by it to be corrected. But I'm going to take this moment on that list, and I want to encourage you as a church. And I want to thank you for loving all kinds of saints. And as our church has grown, um, you know, all kinds of saints have come. Some people have become Christians here. Other saints have shown up here. But we've, we've grown different. different. You've got different kinds of people, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different pres- preferences, all kinds of differences. And, and as we've grown, you've really done an excellent job loving one another, I feel like. Uh, when someone visits the church, uh, we send them a guest survey. And part of the guest survey is so that we can find out what is someone ex- what's someone's experience here when they come and how can we grow. And so we ask them to give like a numeric value. I don't know what it is, but they can like rate things in the church. It's like a shopper thing. You can rate things in the church of your experience. I know it sounds a little consumeristic, but we'd like to know what their experience is. So you can give like a one to five rating um, or something like that. So we have these categories that they can give their input on. And do you know what the number one category of people who visit the church, what they like the best about this church? It's not what's happening right now. It's not the preaching. That's not what ranks up there. It's not what happened up here. It's not the music. Uh, It's not the children's ministry, though I'm sure that's great. Uh, I'm thankful for everyone who's serving back there, but it's not that either. The top thing above all of those is the welcome people experience personally from another person. People comment. Now, if you're a guest here and no one has spoken to you today, you just get the survey and give it a one, and we'll, well, that'll be helpful. We, we need that. that. need to be the humble saints. Uh, so people slip through the cracks. You could visit here, and no one really lo- was very gracious. That could certainly happen. But that, that's a majority thing people tell me. When we have coffee at the pastor's, I'm not soliciting, hey, what do you guys think? I'm not doing that or anything like that. But people would just voluntarily say what they think about the church. And numbers of times people would say, when the service was over, we were really surprised that people stood around and talked. We thought everybody would just leave, but like people hung out. Now, I did correct the first service because after the first service, people hang out the whole half hour and we're trying to start this service that you're coming to. And they're talking so loudly out there while the rest of us are trying to like love God in here and worship him. And they're so noisy enjoying one another that it spills into the room and is a distraction at times. I'm teasing, but it is. People stay the whole break and then you can't even find a place to park right up front because they're out there talking. That's a great problem. That people want to stick or say, we're surprised. People like talk, they like know each other and they're like engaged. That's a surprise to us, people will say sometimes. So why am I saying all that? Well, we want to grow in loving one another. Lord, help us not judge one another, but sacrifice and serve one another. Lord, help us. But God's at work. That's happening. And people have shared that, uh, have shared that. And I want to encourage you because that reflects your heart uh, to reach out. Lastly, they're a community of hope, not only a community of faith and love, but hope. Look what it says, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints is because they have a hope in heaven. It's not that their faith causes them to hope in heaven. It's that the hope of heaven inspires their faith. The hope of heaven is what causes them to love. Here's what they're saying. Here's what Paul's saying. In other words, the gospel is not about have a great life on earth and then eternity will get thrown in as icing on the cake. 
the gospel is have a great eternity with Jesus forever and ever and allow that to inform and give meaning to your day today and to sustain you today even through the difficulties of life. So you get eternity with earth thrown in, not, not the opposite. Eternity with this life thrown in. Most of the victories that Christ has won for us will be received in the new heavens and the new earth. They'll be received eternally if you think about that. There will be no need to pray for anybody sick in the new heavens and new earth. There'll be, what we just did this morning, there's not going to be any need to do that because there will no be no sickness, no suffering. There'll be no need to ask anybody's forgiveness because there will be no sin. There will be nobody left out or harmed or uh, forgotten, neglected. None of that kind of stuff. And so today we get a foretaste of what will be that day. Our best days today are just a foretaste of how great that is going to be. And that's why we want to connect this life to that life. That's what he's saying. You're, you believed because of the hope in eternity. You look to eternity. You look to Christ for eternity. And now you're living today in light of that. That's why we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray that the eternal experience would come and touch today. May the eternal kingdom touch my life today. Even if I'm suffering, may it strengthen me today. Even if things are going bad and I'm frustrated, may it strengthen me today. Even if I don't have a job, may it strengthen me today, you see. So they're looking to eternity and bringing it into today, so to speak. In his paraphrase of this section, Eugene Peterson writes this in the uh, of this verses. This is how he paraphrases them in the message. He says, we keep getting reports on your steady faith in Christ and the love you continually extend to all Christians. The lines of purpose in your lives never grow slack. The lines don't grow slack, tightly tied as they are to your future in heaven, kept taut by hope. So he says, you are hanging on to a line and it's tied to heaven and it is kept tight. You're not loosely hanging on to eternity. It's kept tight. It's like somebody going down a mountain, repelling perhaps, and they're on tight on a rope and they're fixed to eternity. But that rope is their hope that what's what, what keeps them going today, which, what's, what strengthens them, what strengthens them today, not, not loosely tied to eternity, but tightly. Your hope is that tight grip for eternity. The hope of the new heaven and the new earth, that gives us perseverance today. Because in our challenges today, we're able to say, look, this may be bad, but compared to eternity, it is brief. That's what Paul says in another place. It is brief, which doesn't mean it's not terrible, but it does mean it's brief. And there is coming a day when that will be gone and you will know Christ face to face, what you were created for. It gives us perspectives on injustice. Listen, we should do what we can to serve and to help anybody who's being oppressed, anybody who is suffering. We should try to alleviate their suffering, and we should insert what ourselves, whatever we can do, to limit or do away with injustice. But let's be clear. Justice will only be totally sorted out in eternity. There will always be some level of injustice in this life, which does because we're sinners, which doesn't mean we excuse it, but it does mean that our hope is that God, let's do what we can to help someone who's being oppressed. But God, we ultimately trust you to sort this out, that evildoers will be judged and those in Christ will find 
forgiveness. God, we have, that's one of the things that, it's one of the only things that keeps us going in an unjust world, unjust world, is the hope that there is a God who will bring justice. The hope of eternity is what transforms how we view our money. You got to have money to live, but money makes a very poor God. And there's no 401k plan that's transferable into heaven. We're in the new heavens and new earth. You know, everybody's walking around, well, you know, did you, did you save for this? Uh, no, he saved me for this. That, that, was, that was spur of the moment. Thank you for the one laugh over here. Spur of the moment joke. So, no, he saved me. I didn't save for this, which doesn't mean you shouldn't save for your retirement. But I'm, you get the point. Money, it's not, you want to leverage your money and use your money to glorify God today because in eternity, it doesn't matter. He's given it to you today to use for his glory. Your time, your gifts, your relationships. Today, our relationships, we want to value those in light of eternity. So what's Paul saying in this whole section? Through the good news, God creates communities of faith, we saw, love for one another, and hope in eternity that's meant to change the world. God changed Colossae through the good news that Epaphras told them that, that Jesus died and rose for us. And he wants to change the world we live in through our community of faith and love and hope as well. How do we see anything in here about world changing? Admittedly, it's a bit hidden in the text, but I think it's really there. And I think it's there in verse 2, which I skipped. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The same Greek word, in and at, those two prepositions are the same Greek word. They're both the Greek word, en, is the word. So it's faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. We, we could translate it that way. I'm writing to the brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. What's he saying is that you are in Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, that means you're connected to him. His death brings you forgiveness. His resurrection um, empowers you. It, 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 you, are, you are, your sins are forgiven. You receive new life. You're guaranteed eternal life because of his resurrection. So his death and his resurrection are yours. His victories, even though many, most perhaps even, will be experienced in eternity, his victories are yours because you are in Christ. You are connected to Christ. That is your fundamental identity. This is the power of the good news. When you receive the good news and you believe it, that means what Christ did is for you. You're connected to him. You're with him. The Bible even uses the term you're in him. That's what we're seeing. He's in you. And that is your identity. That is your fundamental. Their fundamental identity is not in Colossae. Their fundamental identity is not their, their region, their city, their geography. It's part of their identity. But they're in Christ in Colossae. Your fundamental identity is deeper than your gender. It's deeper. Your fundamental identity, if you're a believer, your fundamental identity in Christ is deeper than your gender. It's deeper than your race. It's deeper than your sexual orientation. It's deeper than your nationality. It's something so deep that it defines you. It's deeper than your preferences, your desires, your gifts, your abilities, what you look like, what you own. There's something that is deeper than all about that than the Christian. That's that I'm accepted by Christ. I'm loved by Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm empowered by Christ. I'm alive in Christ. He is with me. He is in me. 
These Christians may be in Colossae, but ultimately they're in Christ. And here's where this is powerful, is that they represent him wherever they go, whatever they do. You may be in Frisco, but ultimately you're in Christ. You're in Frisco, you're in Christ. That means wherever you go, you're forgiven, you're in relationship with Jesus. His spirit lives in you. He's given you purpose. You're hooked on that tight rope to eternity. He's working love in your heart for all the saints and those who don't know Jesus. He's stirring faith in you. You're connected to his people in all the stuff of Christ. You're connected in Christ wherever you go. In Frisco and in Christ. In the gym and in Christ. In the cubicle and in Christ. In the sales presentation, in Christ. In the kitchen and in Christ. Whatever you are doing, In the neighborhood, in Christ. In the park, in Christ. In church, in Christ. Wherever you are, and this is a powerful thing. That's why um, I want to read you this thing from Sam Storms, which really explains this, that being in Christ is how God plans to change the world through people who are in Christ. Uh, He has some fun with prepositions, which instantly sounds like one of the nerdiest sentences that's ever been uttered from this pulpit. Fun with prepositions. Uh, but he uses prepositions in a way to show the difference that whatever you're, wherever you are, uh, you're in Christ. No matter where you are geographically and physically, what you are spiritually will never change. You may be at work, at play, overseas, under the weather, out of money, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ, believer. You may be down in the dumps, over the hill, beside yourself, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be at paradise or in prison, at the movies or in Chicago, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. Your geographical, earthly, physical location has no effect on your spiritual identity. But the reverse is different. It is precisely because you are in Christ that wherever you live and work and play, you make an impact. You carry an influence. You make a difference. Your spiritual identity as one in Christ must control and characterize how you live wherever you are. So wherever you are, you're making an impact because you're in Christ. And remember, it is in Kansas City or Chicago or Dallas or whatever geographical location you call home that you are in Christ. They are true simultaneously. You do not live in Christ only while you are at church. You do not live in Christ only when you are on your knees or in a home group and then return to being simply in your city when you leave that more holy atmosphere. No, your in Christness is not simply a heavenly reality that obtains only somewhere up there. What an indescribable privilege and joy to be a saint in Christ, in Frisco, or wherever you live. This good news connects us to heaven, joins us to Jesus, grants us new life, puts us in a community of faith, love, and hope. God begins to blossom his life in us, help us to grow, help us to change, and that makes us part of his mission to change the world, one person at a time as we love and reflect what it means to be in Christ. So just like the Colossians, this young church in an overlooked, unimpressive place, they were bearing fruit and they were increasing. And that's my, that's my prayer, 
that we would be joined to this worldwide movement of the gospel, this worldwide, international, throughout the ages movement of good news, that we might share that good news, that we might trust him, love one another, live out our lives in Christ, whether we're here gathered with the church, whether we're in a restaurant in a few minutes here, or we're back home eating, or whatever you're doing for the rest of the day, uh, taking a nap, doing whatever you're going to do, that, that, uh, that you would be in Christ. When you go to work tomorrow, you're in Christ, that we are living our life for his glory. That we have our eyes fixed on eternity, that even these joys of life, we're looking to eternity, and even in the sufferings of life, we're looking to eternity. The joys, they're just a foretaste of the great joy that's coming. The sufferings are just a reminder. This is brief. This is brief. That's forever. Paul thanked God for the Colossians and what God was doing in them. And I want to close with the same, just to pray, thanking God for his work in us and asking him to do increasingly more. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.